That is Ecclesiastes chapter 12. It's our scripture lesson. All verses. Brothers and sisters, this is the Holy Word of God. Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near, of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened, and the clouds return after the rain, the day when the keepers of the house tremble, and the strong men are bent, and the grinders cease because they are few, and those who look through the windows are dimmed, and the doors on the street are shut, and the sound of the grinding is low, and one rises up at the sound of a bird, and all the daughters of song are brought low. They are afraid also of what is high, and tares are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along, and desire fails, because man is going to his eternal home, and the mourners go about the streets. Before the silver cord is snapped, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and brightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed or the collected sayings, they are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God, and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. The word of God so far. Brothers and sisters, this is the first of 14 catechetical sermons. And of course, what we mean by catechetical is it's a sermon which uh, focuses or emphasizes teaching. And our particular topic over these next 14 Sundays is... What is the Reformed faith? Now these will be biblical sermons which reflect what our confessions summarize and they will center on Christ but they will also be defined by teaching exactly what the Reformed faith is. The outline of the sermon series will follow Pastor Adam Kalustian's outline which is found on the website. So again, as we mentioned it would be good to listen to those uh, lectures before this Sunday. So next Sunday, if you listen to lecture, uh, or this next week before next Sunday, if you listen to lecture two, um, that will prepare you for the next week. And before we jump into this, uh, let's ask a few important questions as to why it is important to study this issue. Well, the first is that there is much confusion as to what Reformed is. This is not a term that has had wide usage uh, for many years. People say they're Lutherans or Episcopalians or Baptists or Methodists. Those are terms that are more common, at least in our society or our, our country. 
But when you use the word reformed, that can mean many things to many different people. So we need to be clear about what reformed is, what a reformed church is. This leads to the second question. There are many who vigorously oppose what reformed churches teach. So for instance, maybe you say to your friend, I'm reformed, and they say, oh, you guys believe in predestination. I don't believe that. To which you can reply, well, it's in the Bible. It's in Ephesians 1, it's in Romans 9, it's all over the place. They say, oh no, I don't believe the way you read it. And they think, you know, their view often is that it's, we, we're, we're Stoics or something, who believe that God is a God of fate, or something like that. That's not what it means at all. So, some people may disagree what the, with what the Bible actually says about predestination. That's fine. I think they're wrong. That's another issue altogether when people just don't really understand what the Reformed Church teaches. So we need to be clear about what we believe and also as we explain to others what Reformed is. And third and finally, there are many other issues here, but third and finally, we believe that the Reformed faith most faithfully summarizes the scriptures and provides comfort as it speaks of Jesus Christ and a way in which to view the world. Christianity, after all, is about Christ. If you're a Christian, you need to hear about Christ. Often, always. A true church will do that. A true church will lead you to Christ always. And Reformed faith is very much about centering on Christ. And so, if all of this is true, then we need to be clear about what Reformed is. We talk more about this later, but in the 1500s in France, thousands and thousands of people were martyred for their confession of the Reformed faith. All they had to do is simply recant and say the Reformed stuff is wrong, and they would live. But people faced the sword. They were killed with babies in their arms because of this stuff we're talking about here. Again, Reformed is not some abstract thing, it is the Bible is what true Christianity is. And we'll say this, there are other expressions of true Christianity, other denominations. But again, to our minds, the Reformed faith is the most accurate expression. So very quickly, uh, first we'll understand how, as we think about the bigger issues of religion, how there are these ultimate issues of life that we're really loath to consider. And then second, we'll see how this will force the issue of considering the biblical accuracy of their foreign faith. So the first issue, and Pastor Adam touched, this, touched on this very much in his lecture, is that people really hate to think about the ultimate issues of life. God, death, uh, suffering, things like that. But we must consider them. Solomon states in Ecclesiastes 12 that you must remember your Creator in your youth before the evil days come. That is, you must remember God, think of Him, consider what he, he requires of man before you become old and decrepit. And so notice in, in chapter 12, there's th- these vivid descriptions of people when they become old. They become feeble, they become paranoid. The author says they're afraid of heights all of a sudden. Uh, there are different metaphors that describe the loss of sight. The windows are dim. The doors are shut. A metaphor to the fact that your ears start to lose uh, hearing. 
Finally, the silver cord snaps and the golden bowl is broken. That is a reference to the disillusionment of the soul and body. The cord is snapped, the soul is gone, the bowl is broken, the body is gone. They separate in death. And so the author here very much is saying that man is a creature who lives under the reign of the creator, Yahweh. And Yahweh, of course, is known only through Christ. Man is a creature bound by time and space. He only lives a few short years, then he flies away, as the psalmist says in Psalm 90. Solomon also, who wrote the book, well, book of Ecclesiastes, says that life is vanity. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity, he says. What he means by that is when you look at the world and its horizontal dimensions, as you look around you, and maybe sometimes you forget about God, you realize that life can be very meaningless. Meaningless. There's a lot of hard stuff that happens. And the word he uses is best described or translated as having the wind knocked out of you. So when you realize who you are, as children grow and they realize they're going to die, it's like having the wind knocked out of you. It's, it's tough, it's brutal when you think about life. But the thing is, although all of this is very true, we don't want to think about it. We don't want to consider it. We go to funerals and people look at the dead person in the casket and they still don't want to talk about the fact of death that we will all die. We don't want to think about God. We don't want to think about His judgment. That's how the author ends his book. There will be a final judgment. But the great thing about the book of Ecclesiastes and other literature like it in the Bible is that it's so brutally honest. It says, look around you. You will die. There is a God. There's a final judgment. You must consider these things. Because life only becomes harder and more challenging as you grow older, the author argues you must remember your Creator. You must do business now, as it were, with Him. And notice how many times have you heard a doctor say to people that are on their deathbed, it's time to do business with your Creator. And some of the, th- the, the, the assumptions people have is that, well, you know, you can live life and as you grow older and get close to that, that's when you get right with God. Well, that's foolishness. I mean, all of us have this assumption that, especially children, and that's why Solomon talks to youth, children, it's like, children, wake up now. As you get older, you think, well, you know, I'll be educated, I'll get my job, I'll be married, I'll have my household, my retirement plan, and then at the very end of my life, I'm going to make sure I'm right with God. Well, God says that's foolish. Because you may die tomorrow. Children, you may die in your youth. You may become incredibly sick. Or as the author says here, as you get older, you don't care after a while. And you know how as people grow older, their mind goes too. And you try to hammer in into them like, you know what, you need to think about these things. And after a while they don't care. That's what Solomon says. And that's why he says now is the time to consider these things. So Solomon writes as he does because people don't want to consider these issues. We have to ask a question, question, why? Well, just a few. Uh, The first is sin. Sin is breaking God's law, which means ignoring and even defying who God is 
and what he demands. So in your natural state, you hate God and your neighbor, and that hate, that natural hatred that's only overcome by Christ uh, makes you, in a sense, not want to deal with these issues. Well, that leads us to the second point. You ignore the ultimate issues of life because the exciting, entertaining aspects of life are too alluring. It, there's just too many other exciting things to do. So kids, think of it this way. If your parents say to you one night, Kids, let me give you an option for the stuff we're going to do tomorrow. You know, it's really important to meditate, to be quiet, to think. The Bible says to do as much. We can take time as family just to be quiet tomorrow and meditate and think, maybe discuss some things, read the Bible. Or you can go to Disneyland. Now, what do you think the kids are going to do? 100% of the time, we're going to go to Disneyland. And that's not necessarily wrong. It's not wrong at all to want to go to Disneyland and have fun in life. But you see, the impulse is, is to always go after the things that are exciting. Eye candy, ear candy, all the stuff that's so fun and exciting and it takes a lot of work and effort to go against the grain to say I'm going to consider the ultimate issues of life. And then finally, people are just simply lazy and comfortable where they're at. After all, you and others reason, there are no consequences, it seems, to my actions. Everybody's doing something different. Others believe crazy stuff. They're crazy churches, religions. And it seems like there's no immediate consequence. So I'll just sort of go on where I'm at. I mean, I hear these, these exhortations to think and, and to believe rightly, but where's the payoff in this life? Those are some of the assumptions at work. So become comfortable where we're at. And maybe we're going to a church or we have different worldviews that are, other people say are wrong, but you don't really see the problem with it. I'm lazy and think, why should I really consider the issue? Why? Because God says to pursue truth. So these are all the issues at work as to why we don't um, consider the ultimates of life. But that leads to the way in which Solomon concludes his book. Solomon states that the best thing you can do is to subject yourselves to God the Creator and judge of all things. That is, be clear about who the Creator is and what He demands. Verses 13 and 14. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Proverbs 9.10 The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fear of God. So from Abraham to the thief on the cross, you see that this is the center uh, or a center reflection of true faith. So when Abraham is about to sacrifice Isaac, what happens? The angel stops and says, I see that you fear God. The thief on the cross who has faith says to the one who doesn't, what's wrong with you? Don't you fear God? Fearing God means to have reverence for him. Not terror of him. Christians don't have terror of God. They have fear of God in the sense of reverence. You would have terror for God if you don't know him through Christ. But now he's your heavenly father, so you have respect all for him. Then it is important to state that there is an end of all things. There's a final judgment in which God will evaluate every person's life lived under the sun. Not one person could stand by themselves 
in their own righteousness. But those who trust Christ in His righteousness credited to them, they will stand on the final day. And their lives will make sense after all the difficulties of this present world. So in summary, no one naturally likes to consider the difficulties of this life, especially their own mortality. Further, no one naturally wants to run to God because of their inherent sinfulness. Therefore, it is imperative that you run to Christ in order to consider what is important about life and ultimately find life in Him. And we say that this is the heart of the Reformed faith. Reformed people are willing to be brutally honest about their own sinful fallen condition and the remedy to it. Only the life and work of Christ. Further, the Reformed believe that there needs to be a constant diet of biblical worship which focuses on the law convicting of sin and the center of the gospel justification. That the merits of Christ have been credited to us and that is our hope, not our own merits. And we say that the heart and focus of the Reformed faith is summarized in our Reformed Confessions. Well, the Reformed Confessions are called the Three Forms of Unity, the Heidelberg Catechism, the Belgian Confession, and the Canons of Dort. So we'll talk about this in just a minute, but let's be very clear um, about the definition of what we mean by Reformed. And again, we think that this is an important discussion because the Reformed faith is a very accurate a summary or representation of what the Bible teaches. And if we really believe that we're so creaturely and so sinful and there's only hope in, in uh, Christ alone, we need to be clear about what the Bible teaches and our Reformed confessions are very clear about that. So after Christ descended into heaven, the gospel spreads from Jerusalem outward according to the book of Acts. But also according to the book of Acts, there's a problem immediately with differences in the church. The first council is held in Acts chapter 15 in which the orthodox apostles and elders deal with the Judaizers or these who turn out to be heretics who are saying wrong things about the the gospel. Well, the orthodox, that is the ones who are right about the scriptures, um, say and state to the churches, this is what you are to believe. Now, this controversy was just the beginning of many controversies that split the Christian church over the centuries. And this is where we understand the origins of the Reformed Church in just a few minutes. So the first major split occurred in 1054 AD between the Orthodox and the Catholic churches or the Eastern churches and the Western churches. Now there are many details to this split, but the result was that you have the Roman Catholic Church in the West then you have the Orthodox Christian Church in the East. East meaning you know, uh, the Greeks and the Russians and so on. That's the first major split. Before that, you had uniform Christianity. Now, of course, there are different things going on and controversies, but the first official split is in 1054. The second major split, as you know, occurred in the 1500s in Europe called the Protestant Reformation. And the product was major Protestant churches, such as the Lutherans, the Anglicans, and the Reformed. Those are the three major Protestant denominations, we could say, or groups, after the Protestant Reformation. They separated from the Roman Catholic Church. Now, Reformed churches 
or a part of the Protestant category. But what do we mean? Well, we call ourselves Reformed in distinction from the Roman Catholic Church and other Protestant churches. In general, Protestant is Protestant. A Protestant protests against the Roman Catholic Church, disagrees with it, but also there are differences within Protestantism. Uh, Reformed churches then uh, are in distinction between the Roman Catholic Church, biggest Christian church in the world, and these other Protestant denominations. And also, very important, Reformed churches are not just URCs in North America. There are other Reformed bodies in America, such as the RCUS. Uh, There are other Reformed, bigger, much bigger, Reformed denominations in Europe and all over the world. So we're called the United Reformed Churches of North America, but we're not the only Reformed game in town. More specifically, the title Reformed refers to the fact that we need always to reform and bring back the church into conformity with the Bible. That is, we recognize, we say all the time, we're sinful, and so we always have to make sure we're getting back to the Bible and what it teaches and what it demands. But even more specifically, those who call themselves Reformed define their view of Christianity as found in the, in the Bible as the three forms of unity summarized what the Bible says. So three forms of unity, again, Heidelberg Catechism, Belgian Confession of Faith, and the Canons of Dort. The first two in the 1500s, the last one comes in the early 1600s. Heidelberg, Belgic, Canons of Dort. Those help us to summarize our faith. They are written confessions. We don't believe that they have more authority than the Bible. The Bible has the ultimate authority. But the confessions you see summarized with the Bible, our authority says. Now, there's some confusion. People will say, well, Presbyterians are Reformed too. Well, it depends on what you mean. They believe a lot of the same stuff we do, but their churches arise out of the British Isles. And so they're called Presbyterians. They have a different form of government to ours, but they do believe a lot of the same stuff. But when you say a Reformed church, you're talking about a church who's defined by the three forms of unity. So, you know, if someone asks if you're a Christian, you're you're a member of a Reformed church, and somebody says, are you a Christian? You don't say, no, I'm Reformed. No, you say, yes, I am a Christian, and then you describe what Christians believe. I'm saved by grace through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's everything Christ has done for me, the sinner. And I believe in him alone, not my own works. But you're defined uh, as... Your faith is is worked out in a true church. All Christians have to belong to a true church. And your particular true church, there are other true churches, but your particular true church is a Reformed church. So you say you're a Reformed Christian. There could be Lutheran Christians or Anglican Christians on go. So, to be very clear, a Reformed church is one which focuses on the Bible, uh, specifically the Bible's focus of Jesus Christ, And this is summarized in the three forms of unity. Well, in conclusion, first, because of human sin and frailty, one likes to consider ultimate questions or issues. It is helpful to realize this and hear the Bible telling you this, and to confess the sin of laziness, complacency, and pride. Second, we have stated that the Reformed faith is the most accurate expression of biblical Christianity. The substance of this argument will follow in the subsequent weeks. To summarize, Reformed faith is expressed in a church which speaks to 
or seeks to reform the practice of the church to the Bible. The chief focus of this practice is the life and work of Jesus Christ. The summary of this focus and implication is found in three forms of unity. So very simply, what is reformed? Reformed is a church that is Protestant in distinction between other churches. It is a church that follows the three forms of unity. The three forms of unity focus on justification that were saved by grace through faith alone. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.